about Lightfoot keratoconus. I'm your host, Dr. Melissa Barnett, and I am so excited to introduce you to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Andy Morgenstern. And gosh, we've known each other for so long, and I was trying to think way back to how we started working together, but it's been so many years that maybe you can refresh my memory. Dr. Morgenstern serves as an optometrist at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, and concurrently holds the position of director for the American Optometric Association's Evidence-Based Clinical Practice Guideline Development Group. He also holds the distinction of being one of the pioneering principal investigators for epithelium on corneal collagen crosslinking in the United States. But beyond his clinical work, he co-founded the International Keratoconus Academy of Eye Care Professionals alongside Dr. Barry Iden, who was previously on the Clearly Casey podcast, and he's made significant contributions to the field through co-authoring numerous papers and actively engaging in teaching and educating on keratoconus and ectatic diseases. Welcome, Andy. Thank you so much, Melissa. I, I just want to thank you for bringing me on to the podcast. We've gotten great reviews about it, and uh, I know that NKCF puts this together, and what a great organization the National Keratoconus Foundation is. I uh, couldn't be more proud to be the next in line as a uh, guest on the Melissa Barnett podcast today. Well, thank you so much for being here. Talk about keratoconus, and what was that pivotal moment that drew you in to make keratoconus a focus of your career? It's a really good question. We're, we're not that old, by the way. I, I still think we're well in our young 30s right now, so we don't okay. have that much experience. We'll, we'll pretend. That's great. We'll, we'll pretend. Earlier in my career, um, I cut my teeth in optometry and ophthalmology, really in the refractive surgery world. And since I got out of school, I, I was in the refractive surgery space. And I was working for a company called TLC Laser Eye Centers, in the Washington, D.C. area. And in 2005, we obtained a device called a Pentacam made by Oculus. And I do have to say that I don't have any financial income to report from Oculus. I'm just saying that this is the device that we had. That was in 2005. And wow, was that a wake-up call. At the time, in refractive surgery, we were only using a corneal topographer, a placido disc topographer, to screen our patients for eligibility of refractive surgery. And of course, we had a lot of ectatic patients and we didn't know why because we really were not looking at the back surface of the cornea. Well, when I got my um, Panicam, for the first time in my life, I got to see the backside of the cornea and I got to see what elevation mapping was versus just curvature mapping. And we got to learn in real time before anybody was teaching us, we got a box from Germany. Uh, it was unpacked, plugged into the wall, and uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, yes, it came with a, a manual, of course, but nobody else in, around me had a Pentacam, so I couldn't really discuss what I was looking at. And so between all of us cornea folks that were playing around with this thing and obviously learning through some of the engineers at Oculus back in Germany, we really had to teach ourselves what we were looking at. And oh my gosh, it opened up a whole world of what cornea was and corneal shape was and corneal elevation and corneal disease and where the disease of keratoconus really uh, originates from. I will say it really started putting a lot of pictures together because when I was in optometry school, Heidi Wagner was my cornea contact lens professor at Nova Southeastern. 
And she was a main investigator for the CLEC study, the Collaborative Longitudinal Evaluation of Keratoconus. And so while I was a student, I didn't even know what CLEC was. I know I had a part of it, and, and I knew that we were doing a study for the big professor. When I got my Penicam and really started to evaluate this stuff and really started to learn what was going on with cornea, that was my gotcha moment. And to be honest with you, I've been so enamored with this disease and this disease process and all the diagnostic technical improvements that have happened over the years. And, and quite frankly, the excitement of my colleagues like you and all the others that we get to uh, hang out with all the time, it's become a passion and it's become something that I think none of us are in it for the financial reward. I think everybody is genuinely in it because they're really interested in what this disease uh, is and how our patients are suffering and how we can help them with the right diagnostic technology and treatment methods. Wow, I, I completely agree. And even now, I think that corneal tomography is absolutely mind-blowing. Like to be able to image the posterior cornea and to see keratoconus just pop out. Like, oh, it's so obvious because we have corneal tomography versus corneal topography. I still think it's magical. It's absolutely amazing. And we can measure so many other things too, not just the posterior cornea, as you mentioned, but wow, 2005. That's amazing. I wrote my first article, it's Googleable, I guess, in 2007. And I think the title of the article was Elevate Yourself Above, Above Other ODs. And really, it was my wow article that, holy cow, this is what you can see on the cornea. And this is what our colleagues can't because uh, of this technology not really being mainstream. And I, I think you would agree, Melissa, that part of our mission when we go out and lecture to our colleagues, both in optometry and ophthalmology, is to preach the optometric ophthalmological gospel of elevation technology and looking at that back surface of the cornea and trying to identify this disease as early as possible and using the right technology because the only thing it does is help the patient in the long run. Exactly. We can do better for our patients with this amazing technology. So what inspired you to start IKA with Barry and why was it so important that you did? It's a great question because it's really a continuation of what we just spoke about. Barry and I actually came from two different places within eye care to form IKA. And so what happened was you have this kind of mind-blown moment of looking at the backside of the cornea, learning more about the disease, learning about the disease etiology, and understanding that this technology is available, but not necessarily tremendously accessible to every one of our colleagues. What happened on my end, I went from working at TLC to being asked to join a practice where a doctor was inventing the first mainstream epi on cross-linking device in the United States. And so I became the principal investigator for that. That was around 2009, 2010. What happened was now we had cross-linking, which was an actual treatment, as we all know, to either halt or slow down the progression of corneal ectasia, post-refractive surgical ectasia, keratoconus, and that family of diseases. And so the technology was outpacing the education. And that was a problem. Because not only do you have an, a way to diagnose these patients earlier and earlier and earlier, but the earlier you diagnose it, the earlier you can cross-link someone and stop the disease from getting worse. It was almost like having the polio vaccine 
but nobody knew that the vaccine was in doctor's offices. I wanted to, because I was seeing what was going on early with cross-linking, get that information out there. So to be perfectly honest with the entire world listening to this podcast, I went, me, myself, and I went to Baltimore to the state house and started an LLC. I started a corporation called the Optometric Crosslinking Society. Quite frankly, I didn't want optometry to be held out of the world of crosslinking because I knew it was going to become a very viable option for us one day, which I still think it will. We'll discuss that hopefully in the future. So I really entered this from the crosslinking side, that we wanted optometrists to be a major piece of the puzzle to crosslinking because it seems so optometrically friendly. Well, Barry was at the same exact time looking at keratoconus from the contact lens side, and I know he's a past AOA cornea contact lens chair, and we're just friends, and we got to talking. He said, hey, I've got this group that's working on the contact lens side of keratoconus, and I said, well, I've got this group that's working with the cross-linking side of keratoconus. He said, let's just merge together and work together on all this stuff. That was the genesis of IKA, really to look at the disease of keratoconus, not from the optometry side, not from the ophthalmology side, but from both sides because this is about the disease. It's not about the practitioner providing the care. It's about the patient and and the end. And so what we wanted to do was raise the level of education to both doctors and patients and anybody who wants to listen, quite frankly, about how to best treat and manage this disease. And that was 10 years ago. That was in 2013 that we formed together. We hit our 10-year anniversary. And on our 10-year anniversary, we had our first in-person two-day conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're having our second one coming up and it's just been wildly successful. We really think that along with your work, Melissa, and Mary Pruden's work at NKCF and everybody else, that we've made a difference in educating our colleagues to help their patients. How fantastic. So tell us about the IKA Casey Symposium that's coming up. Awesome. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) We're having our IKA, International Keratoconus Academy of Eye Care Professionals, second annual in-person and virtual, but in-person, if you want to come, two-day, maybe even a little bit more, but we're wink-wink talking about that one, see if we can extend it a little bit. We're going to have a two-day in-person keratoconus symposium with really the best of the best of the best. And of course, we couldn't have the best of the best of the best without having Melissa Barnett lecture. So I know that you'll be at the podium. And Mary as well. Mary Pruden from NKCF will be there representing the organization because we need that patient advocacy as well. So it's really the best and the brightest from the field of keratoconus. We have docs from Baskin Palmer Eye Institute, from Wilmer Eye Institute, from Case Western Reserve, from Duke Ophthalmology, from University of Iowa Department of Ophthalmology. We have great docs from private practice. Um, We have docs that actually invented some of the software and the hardware on these devices that we use all the time. We have patient advocates there. Our first one, Barry and I were nervous. We didn't know how the reception would be, of course, with anything first. And we really knocked it out of the park. We had a packed room and we had tons of people online listening in and people waiting for the second one. So this one is going to be in Bethesda, Maryland. It was strategically chosen to be in Bethesda, Maryland because it's close to my house. (laughs) That's strategic. Yes. But I will say... Yes. Yeah. And great for me, finally. I don't have to travel. But quite frankly, the reason why it isn't Bethesda, Maryland is because, A, it's a suburb of Washington, D.C. We have three airports that serve the area. We have metro access to get you downtown. It's a beautiful hotel and conference center. There's a walking mall right next door with all the great stuff that everybody can do. It really is a hub of information in the Washington, D.C. area. We're right down the street from the National Institute of Health. 
Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, National, Lib uh, National Library of Medicine, all within a mile or two of where our venue is. We thought it was an excellent choice. We were on the West Coast last year. We want to be on the East Coast this year. We'll probably be moving around so we can share the knowledge with other people in the future. Oh, Fantastic. shameless plug, www.gotoper forward slash am hyphen ika. Gotoper.com forward slash am slash a hyphen IKA, but hopefully we could put that on the screen because that was tough. Excellent. We'll share the link with this podcast as well. And I'm so excited uh, for this coming up next year. Ah, oh, I'm sorry. So, the yeah. date, May 18th and 19th, 2024. I forgot to tell you that. <laughs> That's a very important piece. A little, little important. Yep. Yep. So, Andy, I understand that you're part of a group that has recently submitted a paper for publication on the pediatric prevalence of keratoconus in the United States. Can you share with us more about why you undertook this study and how the results will impact eye care? Sure. First off, Melissa, as we always do, I always want to thank my co-authors and acknowledge that I was not the first author on this paper, that Dr. Jen Harthan out of the Illinois College of Optometry was the first author. The entire group did a wonderful job, and we have great representation from all of our authors and experts in, in their own right. So basically, we talked about the Pentacam, we talked about IKA, and one of the things that I realized pretty early on at my practice at TLC was we had patients come in, and I'm sure this would happen to you as well. I know you're in a, a vibrant academic institution, tons of patients, lots of specialty clinic patients, but you have patient number one comes in and you diagnose them with keratoconus through some sort of device like a Pentacam. And you tell the patient, stop rubbing your eyes. We have to talk contact lenses. We may have to talk cross-linking. But really what we want to talk about, what's most important is that there's a genetic component to this disease and that other family members uh, potentially could uh, either have it and not express it yet or have it and think that they have some other type of refractive error and they're not aware that they have the disease. And so one of the things that we did at TLC very early on was to say, hey, come on in. Let, let's just take a quick panicam on your biological siblings. Or if you're an adult, which most LASIK patients are because they have to be over 21, the average demographic of a LASIK patient at its heyday was about 37, 38 years old and female. And generally speaking, they, they were a mother of two. And we looked at those <laughs> demographics really hard. So we said, hey, bring those kiddos in here and let's do a quick screening on them to see if they're showing any signs. Lo and behold, guess what we found? We found kids with keratoconus. But the literature, speaking on behalf of myself, not the young Melissa Barnett, but the elder literature when I went through optometry school told me that keratoconus was a disease of the second to third decade of life. And well, guess what? Now I've got kids in my office with the disease. So therefore they're wrong and I'm right. And because the technology that was used back then was inferior to what we're using now, now we're detecting earlier and earlier and earlier. Barry and I through IKA and some of our colleagues like Bill Tulo and, and we talked about it with you and, and John Gellies and, and Loretta uh, Flynn and, and Chris Sint and, and the whole bunch of us and some of the ophthalmologists as well we're saying this disease does take place in the pediatric population, but how rare is it? How often does it happen? And so we went a literature surgeon. That's what nerds like us like to do. We go, we go looking for the papers. And yep, guess what I love we the found? Papers. Yep. 
guess what we found? We found nothing in the United States. We found maybe one paper in the Middle East. It was a good paper and it started a conversation. However, it wasn't as accurate as we wanted it to be. And so what we said, we got to find this out uh, because if we have a cross-linking device in this country now that can halt or slow down the progression of this disease and we have kids losing vision, it really is incumbent upon us to be aware of what that population is. And so we went out and we talked to Oculus and they uh, donated access to Pentacams through folks like Sandy Block and Jen Harthan at ICO. We gained access to their population of patients that they have an agreement with in the Chicago public school system. And what we were able to do with a perfectly intact IRB and parent authorization to screen these kids, we did everything 100% by the book. We looked at children between the ages of three and 18 years old. It was largely a black and Hispanic population. We looked at well over 4,000 eyes and we used the, the algorithm set up by Bellin and Ambrosio on what was determined to be a keratoconus patient based on the results of the studies and also a keratoconus suspect. So we try to identify who was a suspect for keratoconus at that age and then who actually had diagnosable disease. And we found a significant prevalence within the pediatric population, this prospective observational study, to the tune of less than one in 400 uh, kids between the ages of three and 18 years old had the disease of keratoconus. And if you combine kids with keratoconus and keratoconus suspects in this population, it was less than one in 200 kids. Obviously, our eyes lit up and were wide open that we said the attention was to write the paper. But now that we have the data and it, it is submitted and it was approved and it's going to be published in a, a journal called Eye in Contact Lens any day now, if anybody wants to knock on their door and say, hurry up, we'd greatly appreciate it. But it is going to be published out there. And what we hope it does is really kick down the door for other people to do research on this population as well and to give the tools to organizations like the National Keratoconus Foundation to advocate for uh, kids to get these necessary eye exams so we can detect this disease and treat this disease as early as possible. Uh, understanding, too, that um, keratoconus in the pediatric population is different, in my opinion, than it is in the adult population. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I've been yapping, yapping, yapping this whole time here, Melissa. I don't know what you do, but my personal opinion is if I even suspect a kid of having keratoconus, the longest I will let them go before coming back for an additional exam is six months. More, uh, I lean to the three-month side, just because the disease is so aggressive in the pediatric population. Oh, yes, I, I completely agree. And Dr. Marguerite McDonald was on the Clearly KC podcast to talk about age and keratoconus, and she agrees too. So in that pediatric population, we really want to monitor our patients very closely. So I agree three, four months instead of six months. It also depends on how old they are and if we're expecting changes, uh, which oftentimes we do in these kids. But wow, what a, what a fantastic study. I'm so proud of all of you for doing this study and bringing this information and sharing it with all of us because it's so important for all kids and everyone to actually evaluate for keratoconus. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I'll, I'll take it one step further. At our last meeting, 
uh, the IKA Symposium in Scottsdale, we had Mike Bellin at the podium, and he was obviously talking about his analytic software for the Pentacam, the Bellin Ambrosio display that he created. And I asked the question, Dr. Bellin, in a perfect world, let's say all eye care providers did have a Pentacam or some sort of Scheimflug posterior elevation technique, even if it's an OCT that can measure the posterior elevation of the cornea. Should a child have a screening exam at some point in their life? Should it be mandatory for all kids based on what we think the prevalence of the disease is? Is it a yes or no? Should they have it? And if so, at around what age? And his answer was a definitive yes in a perfect world, assuming all eye doctors had this great technology. He said absolutely yes, because the disease is so highly prevalent in the population. And kids are not born. Babies are not born with keratoconus. They develop keratoconus. And so we know right around that puberty age is where the the magic happens. And so his answer was somewhere between the ages of 10 to 12, 10 to 13 years old, all kids in a perfect world should have some mapping of the backside of their corneas to see if they do express this disease at its earliest phase. That was mind-blowing to me. You've heard me and Barry say this a ton of times, and I'm sure you've said it a ton of times. We do exams on kids that are not high-yield result exams all the time. Take glaucoma, for instance. In an otherwise healthy child, how many times have you done an IOP check on a pediatric patient? The answer is everybody does it all the time. Well, how many times have you ever found the disease of pediatric glaucoma in that otherwise healthy population? Most people will say never, and some people will say really rarely. I'm not saying that you should not check IOP on kids. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that is a test that is done routinely on almost every kid during a comprehensive annual eye exam that yields no positive disease. What we're saying is we want kids to get screened for the diseases that they are more likely to have because we can do something about it. And that's why it's so important for this pediatric prevalence study to kind of hit the road. When I say Excellent. hit the road, I mean hit the road and everybody read it, not, not get hit at it. Hit the road so we can, so yeah. we can image. I yeah. mean, imagine yes. that this will be the practice in the future where we do image every child and image their posterior cornea. Well, Andy, gosh, I, I know that we can talk for eight more hours on this because yep. we are so passionate about the subjects And I really sincerely want to thank you so much for joining us on the Clearly KC podcast. Thank you all for listening. Please listen to all the episodes on the Clearly KC podcast on Podbean or your favorite podcast app to subscribe and get future episodes. So until next time, I'm Dr. Melissa Barnett and see you soon on the Clearly KC podcast. Bye.